My name is, uh, you, you can, I, I don't really know how to ask people to refer to me anymore. Um, I was just saying, I haven't spoken in a non-medical audience for a while, and so trying to adjust my thinking and reframe things. Um, you can call me Dave, you know. <laughs> if you still want to attach a, a formal title. I am Chinese by, by ethnicity, and we have a tendency to you know, say, oh, if they're a doctor, you have to call them doctor. And so you can say, Dr. Dave is you know, what I tell the kids that call me or whatever. So um, we had some visitors over at the house the other day, and I was coming down the stairs, and my, my four-year-old, um, he looks at the, the woman who's there, and he's like, this is my friend Dave. And I'm just like, you know, dad works, you know, like my friend. I was like, that's, I guess I should be flattered that my four-year-old thinks of me as a friend, and we're on a first-name basis too. But I was like, um, we're definitely breaking the, uh, the Chinese mold there, I'll say. <clears throat> so, um, uh, I did used to teach Sunday school for when I was, like, way back in the day for a bunch of middle schoolers. Um, and so I'm going to apologize in advance if I treat you all like a bunch of middle schoolers, um, by which I mean I tell corny jokes and things like that. Um, so I'll start off with one. Uh, so <clears throat> doctor uh, goes into the office. A patient comes in. Doctor says, I have terrible news. And I have even more terribler news after that. Patient goes, okay. Oh, yeah, there's one of them in the back there. Um, patient says, oh, what is it? Doctor says, oh, your lab results came back. And... You only have 24 hours to live. The patient's like, that's horrible. Like, what could be worse news than that? The doctor says, I've been trying to get in touch with you yesterday. <laughs> so, <clears throat> anyway, um, I told that to a couple of patients, and the, the laughter was kind of mixed for some reason. So, and, so I'm here to talk with you by invitation today, and, and thank you for the introduction, um, about faith and medicine. Um, what does it mean to be a Christian doctor, um, and I'm going to be uh, rambling a little bit, and I'm hoping for a couple moments here where we can be a bit more interactive and take a break um, and do a little bit of uh, sorting through some scripture as well, but I think I want to start with the question as to what does this mean to be a Christian doctor, right? and how is that different from being a Christian that happens to be a doctor? Mm-hmm. I hear the introspective. Oh, that's, that's a good question. Um, and so I don't, I don't know that I've answered that for myself yet, but uh, if you want to turn to your neighbor, so this is the middle school part that comes in, turn to your neighbor, right, and ask one another, what's, is there a difference? There doesn't have to be. Is there a difference between being a doctor who is a Christian and a Christian doctor? And what is that difference? All righty, let's bring it back. Very animated conversations, you know. At least you're not throwing things at me yet. Um, what did you talk about? Anyone want to volunteer some thoughts? I'd love to hear it because you know, I'm not really sure myself. Yes. So, thank you for those comments. Right? Um, 
and this, these are the, the questions and the tensions that I, I wrestle with on a regular basis. I'm not saying that there's a clear dichotomy right, between these two definitions. Right? Clearly, there's some overlap and some things that we expect to be um, <clears throat> the same. Here are some comparisons that I offer, I submit to you, um, that I've thought through or I've kind of come up with and how I, I think about this. So a doctor who is a Christian, for example, is a Christian in private who acts with professional integrity. I don't think we would disagree with that. A Christian doctor has a worldview and ethical framework for the entire approach to medicine itself as a field. A doctor who is a Christian prays for patients. A Christian doctor perhaps prays with patients. A doctor who is a Christian has oftentimes a view on ethical limits on things that he or she won't do. A Christian doctor also believes in the biblical proscription for positive affirmation and valuation of life, comprehensively. And the reason why I'm here, um, among several, is I'm not here to say, you know, oh, well, this is you know, all the wonderful things that I've done, and these are all the wonderful things other people have done, and this is what wonderful doctors do who are Christians or Christian doctors or whatever. It's also to have some thought as to for yourselves in your daily personal life and how you approach your careers, right? And staying at home, raising kids is a career, right? Whatever walk of life that you are in, what does it mean to approach it with a worldview, with a framework, with a lens through which the gospel interprets everything, right? It's not just, here's a secular profession with the standards of practice that I do for that, in addition to my privately held beliefs as a Christian, it's what does it mean to take a Christian lens towards even a secular framework and a secular perspective and understand where the world is and where the world operates and how it is that I can speak the gospel into that that is not merely about individual salvation. And what I hope to present to you today is that these are not things that uh, are exclusive to medicine, though I do believe that there are very specific ways in which that can be applied. What I will start with here is a, I was like, oh, Christians in medicine. I went to Google. I was like, well, what does this look like? And so according to encyclopedia.com, I found some very interesting history. Then you guys were talking about origins before. So Christian faith in medicine Uh, I'm just going to read some of this for you. From the beginning, Christians had exhibited a philanthropic spirit that was evident in their concern, both personally and corporately, for those in physical need. This spirit was in marked contrast with that of the classical world in which there was little or no religious basis for charity that expressed itself in a personal organized concern for those who suffered physical distress. Christian concepts of philanthropy were motivated by agape, a self-sacrificing love of others that bore witness to the love of Christ as reflected in his incarnation and redemptive work on the cross. Christians were encouraged to visit the sick privately, and deacons, whose duties largely consisted of the relief of physical want and suffering, were expected to visit the ill. Beginning in 250 AD, the cities of the Roman Empire experienced a major plague that lasted for 15 to 20 years and reached epidemic proportions. Because the civic authorities did little to deal with the plague, the Christian churches undertook the systematic care of both pagan and Christian plague victims and the burial of the dead, despite the fact that Christians were at the time a persecuted minority. 
descriptions exist of the organization of the care of the sick in Rome, Carthage, and Pontus. In Alexandria, a medical corps known as the Parabolani was formed to transport and nurse the sick under the jurisdiction of the Patriarch of Alexandria. The legalization of Christianity by Constantine in 1313 AD resulted in major changes in the church's administration of medical philanthropy. The role of individual congregations and of the laity declined, whereas that of bishops who administered the chattel programs grew. In the 370s, Christians created the hospital, a specifically Christian institution that arose out of the philanthropic ideals of the early church. No similar organization existed in the classical world. Again, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian doctor? What does it mean to be a Christian who practices medicine? What does it mean to be a Christian that views the world through the lens of Christ himself? I'm going to rewind a little bit, tell you a little bit more about myself. Uh, my wife will tell you one time I won an award for humility, um, so I love to talk about myself. Ha, 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 ha. Um, she loves to make fun of me for that. Um, so I, <laughs> I, I grew up in the suburbs of New Jersey. Don't, don't hate. Don't hold that against me. I apologize in advance. Um, and uh, I went to a kind of a mega Chinese church at that time, 2,000 members, um, non-denominational, but I would say in reality very Baptist-y kind of leanings. Um, and I went to Princeton University, so kind of stayed in state, stayed close by. And while I was in college, I continued to go back to my home church to work with middle school students and others. And I studied as an electrical engineer, in part because my dad was an electrical engineer, um, and in part because my mom was a nurse. And I had known I wanted to go to medical school. I wanted to be a physician um, or something in the health-related professions. But uh, I, I wanted to... <laughs> Start, I want to try and satisfy what is uh, insatiable curiosity that I seem to have. Um, and so in college, I got, I was looking at my transcript the other day because it, it came up in a PDF. I was like, oh, that's a lot of C's. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, my parents would say I got distracted. Um, I would say that um, it was integral to my calling in my future because what I was confronted with for perhaps the first time my life was the problem of evil and the problem of suffering. And I kind of knew this on an intellectual basis growing up in the church. You know, I'd gone to these youth missions trips and things like that. I'd seen life outside of my kind of suburban bubble. Um, but the question that I was asked to talk about is, well, what happens when suddenly the, the faith, the dogma that you are taught is confronted with these very contemporary and very real issues to which the biblical description does not necessarily or immediately make sense. Right? Um, science, whatever that means, right, is, is one kind of context for that. Right? But what about suffering? Right? And suffering being a universal human condition. And so what I learned about for the first time in college was slavery still exists in the world. Right? We call modern-day slavery. Right? Human trafficking still exists in the world. Um, not only human trafficking, but sex trafficking of children exists in the world. Now more, actually, than it ever has before. Right? Genocide, right? ethnic cleansing, right? civil conflict, all of these horrific things that I had not been exposed to, right? suddenly I was aware of and was just reading kind of voraciously on the topic, being like, Wait, how, how come no one from the church taught me about this? 
And so I went to my pastor. I said, what's up with this? Like, what is the church's response to suffering, right? And to injustice, specifically. And the answer I got was, well, you know, well, Jesus Christ came to save us from our sins. I was like, okay, I understand that, check, right? Um, and we share the gospel with one another, and, you know, our bodies are not bound to this earth, and, you know, when we die, this is what we allow, you know, what, what mechanism God has provided to bring us into eternal salvation. I'm like, okay, and... Um, say, well, whatever you do, like, you know, just, you know, that social justice stuff, like, just, just you know, like, there, there's a lot of history there, and you got to be really careful, and, you know, like, um, just, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. It's like, okay, so, so what are we talking about? Right? What is the answer? Um, and I, I did not get a very satisfying answer. Um, and so that kind of started this journey for myself in really trying to dig into suffering, because if you think about it, there's really nothing... That's, that's more defining to the human condition, literally to the human condition, right? What defines us as human, what defines us as living in a fallen world is that the world is not as it should be, right? Uh, again, my understanding is you just talked about origins. The way the world was created was ideal. It was good, right? God looked at the world and said, it is made good. Humans are made good. And yet, and yet sin has infected the world. It has, it has crept into it like a cancer, right? And if you know biology, you know how cancer begins. It begins often with a single mutation, right? And you think it's so small. DNA has billions and billions of base pairs and whatever in it, right? How can something so small result in something so devastating? If you've ever had someone that you know that's gone through the process of cancer. And the, the answer is that sin spreads. It's insidious, it's not so simple to identify. Right? It is deeply rooted, and it's transformative in the most vicious of ways. Right? If that's true, and that's what we believe about sin, what do we believe about the gospel? Is the gospel something that's too simple for us? Is it something that's just purely for the realm of personal salvation and you know, soul transformation, and has very little to say about the physical body. We don't believe that to be true. In fact, in the early church, that was called heresy, right? To believe that human beings are only the soul, or only the spirit, or only spiritual things matter. To believe that the body was completely inferior and irrelevant was to kind of point yourself into the Gnostic camps, where you say that the body is immaterial, and all that matters is what is spiritual, right? God created the body good, and yet, and yet the body decays. I, had a, I saw a patient, uh, this was a while ago, and you know, I walked into the room, and this patient had had metastatic cancer, had had it for some time, was going through palliative chemotherapy, which means it was not meant to cure. It was meant to either slow down the progression of the cancer or alleviate some of the symptoms. And I walked in, and you know, he was this very kind of you know, jovial sort of guy, and he looks at me and says, Doc, am I going to die? And I... I was a little sleep-deprived. I wasn't thinking straight. And I just reflexively answered, you know, like, oh, yeah. And we're all going to die, right? <laughs> Tells you a little bit something about my bedside manner. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but, and then he looked at me for a moment, and he said, thank you. You're the first doctor to tell me this. And in my mind, I was like, I don't know what medical school the other doctors went to. But last <laughs> I checked, 
You know, we all die. Even Jesus died once, right? So I was like, I, okay. Um, I was like, I, I, I was like, I don't think you're going to die this hospitalization. But like, yeah, we're all going to die, right? And he was like, you know, I've asked this question to other doctors, and they say, oh no, don't don't talk like that. Don't don't say things like that. You know, we're, we're going to get you through this, blah, blah, blah. But this man had metastatic cancer. He was on palliative chemotherapy. It was imminently obvious that he was going to die. And yet, somehow, within medicine, we had missed that kind of larger point in communicating with him, right? In discussing suffering, death, mortality, right? And... It's what I tell the residents, what I tell medical students. I said, there's nothing else that's more true in your practice of medicine than that everyone will die. And so kind of going back to where I was in college at that time, I was saying, well, how do I think about and how do I deal with suffering? How do Christians think about and deal with suffering? Because I tell you, I was not really taught that. And I don't know how your personal experience has been but think about people that you know who have been very ill right? or chronically ill, who, who suffer through a variety of things. How do you journey with them in that process? What does the cross say about suffering? What does Christianity say about suffering? And especially suffering caused by injustice. Right? How do you confront that? What do you do with that? And so... This really, this really got at me, and so I started like, kind of, counting electrons didn't just seem as, as fun anymore, um, and so I kind of started shifting tack from electrical engineering, and then, you know, uh, God bless Rutgers that they actually accepted me to medical school. Um, so, so I went to medical school, and I would say my second year of medical school, in retrospect, I, I'm pretty sure I was depressed, like severely clinically depressed. And the reason why is it came after a series of confrontations with suffering in my own life. First began with, uh, I dated the first person that I ever dated, and then she broke up with me. Or I, I, it, was, it was complicated, right? Um, but then, like, we were in these small group classes together, and then, so, like, three times a week in medical school, I had to, like, sit across from her. Like, it was, it was kind of, it was, it was painful. Um, and then, of course, she dated someone else who was also in the class. And it was just, it was awkward, right? Awkward. So, you know, that was, that was, that was heartbreaking. Um, and then a close friend of mine from college um, got leukemia. And then she died. Um, and then a person that, um, I had been a small group leader when I was in college. And there was a student that had come, you know, occasionally a couple years younger than me. I didn't really know him well, but I had gotten to know him, and then he, I, he had committed suicide. I mean, that all happened within like three or four months together. And second year of medical school is, is terrible. <laughs> like literally you sit in a, in a dark room for like 16 hours a day, and just, you just sit there and you're supposed to read. And I, I just I had trouble focusing because I was so bound up in, in grief and, and grieving all these different things and, and the complexity there. And again, coming back to this question of what do we do? What does, what does the gospel have to say about us when we suffer? Right? When we have that deep pain that it feels like few people understand. When you look at life and you see futility, when you recognize that everyone dies, 
It may not be a painful death, but everyone dies. And for some people, it is a painful death. And for a lot of people, it's been a really painful life, too. What does the gospel have to say about that? Is it just, oh, you have a mansion in heaven? That's it. And one of the things that really struck me, that helped transform that narrative in my head, that helped me understand better, what does the gospel have to offer? It's not, is that Jesus didn't just become the sacrificial thing and then just go back up to heaven and that was it, with no personal interaction with anybody on earth. He came and he lived. He not only lived, he healed. And he not only healed, he did it in a very personal, individualized, one-on-one sort of way, where everything was different. And in each thing, he looked at the person and he loved them deeply. Not only that, Jesus himself suffered. God suffers. And so if God is not exempt to suffering, how can I claim exemption to that? Right? And what is God's suffering? God's suffering occurs to him, he who should be exempt from it. He who deserves to not experience those things. He does that. Why? Because we suffer the effects of sin. We are broken by it. And Jesus lived that life to come alongside of us in our brokenness, to take that brokenness upon himself, that we might have redemption. That is the gospel, is it not? And so then what does that mean then in medicine? What does that mean in healthcare? To literally have a profession where you're observing the brokenness, the profound brokenness and the suffering of people, things that you may not be able to individually alleviate, but to recognize the injustice of. And to be able to speak about the power of redemptive transformation into so, if you have your Bibles, um, if you want to open up to the Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. And I'm going to read this for you. <clears throat> and behold, in ESV, <clears throat> I'm a little partial to that, sorry. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down to Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, And gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. 
And so when I was in medical school, um, I did this program called the Summer Medical Institute um, with uh, Medical Campus Outreach, MCO. And what this was is in Philadelphia. Anyone familiar with Esperanza Health Center in Philadelphia? So they're a Christian clinic. Um, they're a Christian primary care office that offers essentially comprehensive medical services in the outpatient setting. Um, and they had collaborated to have this program for people in health professions to literally live in the hunting park community for, um, at that time for me, it was a period of two weeks, um, do door-to-door health screenings, blood pressure checks, you know, blood trigger checks, and then to talk with people about spiritual health as well. And that's when I learned and started this exercise of asking patients about what their beliefs were and how I could pray for them, how I could serve them in that way, and understanding that the brokenness of sin is physical and spiritual, right? It's, it's, it's holistically broken, if you will, right? And so if I really want to work on healing people, if I really want to approach the person as they are, and as I believe that they were created in the image of God, spirit and body, right, that I need to be equipped to be able to address all of these things, right, and to be able to talk about it very plainly with people. And if you're familiar with Philadelphia, the Hunting Park area is, is very broken um, in a number of ways. It's actually been transformed quite a bit because of the presence of Esperanza itself in the community. Um, if you read and listen to those who have founded it, it's, it's a really remarkable story. Um, but what I was blown away by was this process of living in the community and really having neighbors, right? So the CEO of Esperanza, Susan Post, lives in that neighborhood, right? And so she literally every day, you know, is there and talks to her neighbors, knows all of her neighbors, knows everything that's going on in their lives, and they know everything that's going on in her life, right? And there was something, there's something about that that I never had growing up in the suburbs, right? That, that intimate knowledge of my neighbor, right? Which I suspect is much more similar to what Jesus was describing in community and in life back at that time, right? Something that I feel like I had lost or I had never had. Um, and so it, it planted the seed in my mind saying, I, I want to know what that feels like. And this question, who is my neighbor, was something I could not shake. Right? And so when I went to residency here in Delaware, my top choice doing this internal medicine and pediatrics program, in part because the, the thorny issue with the OBGYN and um, related ethical things there was something I was like, I'm not prepared to deal with this right now. Um, so, and I also don't like gynecology, no offense. It's just, just, <laughs> just not my thing, sorry. Um, everyone's got a thing, that's not my thing. Um, so, uh, so I moved in here, and I spent my, it was a four-year residency program, I spent my first year living in Bear, you know, school bill apartments, nice place. Um, and I was saying, I, I really want to get closer. Um, I I want to know what it means to be a neighbor in the city. And so I started learning more about Wilmington. Um, what I didn't tell you was growing up, uh, going through high school and whatever, I wanted to be a medical missionary. That was actually my real driver for going to medical school. I wanted to go overseas and, uh, you know, bushwhacking the scrub brush and, like, you know, treating snake bites and the kind of all the exotica, as you will, um, from my, my, that I had dreamed of in my kind of young mind and, and such. Um, and so kind of reflecting on that, um, I had also had a series of medical issues myself. I collapsed lungs. I had to get surgery and this and that. And I realized being out you know, a couple hours away from medical care may not be the, the best situation for me to have a longer career if, I, if I'd like it. Um, and then after my experience with SMI, I was like, wait, this is, this is in my backyard. Um, these incredible levels of disparity right, 
is literally 10, 15 minutes away. In fact, these are my clinic patients that I'm taking care of. Right? And when I'm talking with them, I don't feel like I really understand where they're coming from. Um, and they don't really, it, it just, it's just hard. And so I was like, let me, let me find out more. So um, I had found out about this organization, Urban Promise. Um, and so I said, you know, I really want to be more involved with the, the community, and I want to live in the neighborhood. And so they said, okay, um, well, we got one guy who's moving out, and there's two other guys that are living there now, and so you, know, you can move in with them if you want. Um, but uh, just, just to let you know, it's, it's a bit of a rough area. Um, like, if you really want to be in the middle of it, like, you're going to be in the middle of it, right? And so I was like, uh, and then my lease expired, and I forgot to renew. I was like, okay, <laughs> I need a place to live. So, um, so I moved in, and I stayed there for two and a half years um, throughout my residency. And I don't know how, how much you know about medical residency. It's grueling. It's what I tell people is it's the most inhumane of what's supposedly a humane profession, right? Um, and what I tell the residents is, <laughs> however hard you think your life is during residency, and it, it may be hard, and not to compare suffering, but however hard you think that is, right, you still have a paycheck, right? You still have access to a lot of things. For a lot of our patients, they don't even have that, and their life is 10 times harder. I was like, just, just putting it out there, right? Again, you know, not to compare suffering, but what my neighbors and I experienced in those two and a half years was truly life-changing. Um, pipes froze in the winter, and the landlord was like, oh, you, um, you know, we own the, the, the apartments down, or a house down the, the street. We'll tell them to let you in so you can use their bathroom. <laughs> but that, was, that was the answer to the pipes frozen for the second time, right? That winter, I was like, okay. Um, uh, Gunshots, I think, is what everyone likes to think about and talk about because it's, you know, oh, like that's what everyone thinks about when they think about the city. And so I heard on a weekly basis during the summertime, during the two and a half years that I was there, people were actually shot outside my house and I ended up holding pressure on people's wounds twice. Not once, twice, right? Um, and, you know, I stood out there on the porch and watched the police set up a checkpoint and literally just pull people over and just, you know, throw them in the van and then just arrest them. Um, and watched my neighbors just standing on the porch just being like, what's going on? If you imagine this happening in, in your neighborhood or your, your area, right? Um, I watched, you know, so many things. I heard yelling and screaming in the middle of the night because someone was threatening to, to kill his girlfriend. Um, the house got drug busted. You know, police raided the house. Um, like... <laughs> I saw police stop by another house while I was driving to work, so I said, oh, let me see if there's a medical issue, and then carried my, my little medical bag I got on eBay in. I was like, hey, anybody need help? And then you see police coming out with, like, dogs, you know, and they're like, oh, no, we're good here. I was like, oh, that's, this wasn't a medical issue. Okay. And then, you know, as I'm walking out, listening to the neighbors telling me, they're like, see, look, they're wasting everyone's time. Everyone knows there's not a drug issue in that house. Right? That wasn't it. Um, and beginning to get a sense as to the very complex issues of justice, of poverty. I never once heard any of my neighbors use that word to describe themselves. Not a single time did I ever hear anyone that I knew as a neighbor call themselves living in poverty. Because it just robs people of the dignity of day-to-day life. But uh, what I learned the most, though, and these are kind of the, the spectacular sort of things, the things that people like to ask and talk to me about, but what I really loved about it was the sense of being a neighbor, 
right, that people knew me, that when I came home at 10 o'clock at night after a long shift in the hospital, they said, hey, Dave, you look really tired. Like, you look really discouraged. Like, what's going on? How was your day? Right? And then realizing we live in a segregated society. We have for a long time. We've evaporated these concepts of neighborliness, right? of proximity. Right? We've created kind of parallel patterns in society where there's no need for intersection or overlap, um, where it can be convenient to turn people into abstractions right? rather than saying, who is my neighbor? Right? Who is this person living in the home next to me in all of their life? whose sin that I can speak into and whose redemption I can also observe and witness and vice versa, right? That most of my neighbors were Christian, right, on Pine Street, um, even if I had never thought that there would be a lot of Christians living in the inner city, so to speak, or however you want to describe it. Um, And so going back to this parable of the Good Samaritan, going back to the way Jesus interacts with and challenges people, a lot of times we say, who is my neighbor? Not because we want to serve our neighbor, but because we want to justify ourselves. We want to justify the spheres and the patterns and the the places in life that we're already and comfortably at. And one of the things that I love about medicine is that it forces me to look at a cross-section of society. One day I can be taking care of someone who is a vice president or a CEO of one of the banks here. And then the next day, it can be someone who's been homeless for the past five, six, ten years. Right? And I would hope that medical care would be the same, right? that the professional standards of what I offer from a medical therapeutic basis is identical. Right? But in reality, we live in a system where payments, right, where finances are very much tied into what kind of medical care you're eligible for and that you receive. And then saying, what does it mean to have a Christian framework, a Christian worldview, a going back to those early Christians and looking at the world and saying, what does it mean for us to radically speak the transformative power of the gospel into this life, right? into the lives of others, into myself, right? into the community? And what it is is that without my neighbor, my understanding of myself, my understanding of the gospel is incomplete. They are not disposable people. They cannot be ignored and have myself assume that my understanding, conceptualization of the gospel is still intact. By definition, Christianity is we are the body of Christ. We cannot say to the arm, we cannot say to the eye, we cannot say to the leg, I don't need you. So what does that actually mean? And I know, (laughs) running short on time, Um, so... You know, what does this mean to have this kind of framework and to think about it from a large perspective? And so a couple things, and takeaways for you and an example from uh, my own life and practice. So I'm a hospitalist. I'm always in the hospital. It's, I don't have an office, um, and so I see patients who are sick enough to not be able to be cared for at home. And if there's nothing else that I would like you to take away from today, um, it's going back to Micah 6.8. Right? So what is... the he has shown you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to, anyone know this verse? To, yeah, to do justly, to love mercy, right? And to walk humbly with your God, right? And so I'm not saying what I'm doing or what I did on Pine Street, which I, I don't live there now, right? I live in Trolley Square, very, you know, very 
pleasant neighborhood, um, except about 2 a.m. on Fridays and Saturdays when everyone from the bars are coming out, right? Um, but what does it mean for me to be a good neighbor there? Right? To know about the lives of the people around me and that I intersect with, and to intentionally enlarge my view and my interaction with other people, right? To be able to look at them as spirit and body and everything else, and to be able to care for that from a larger perspective. Uh, what does it mean for each of you, right, for each of us, to be comfortable with suffering and talking about it? I would argue more appropriately listening to people about it, right? being willing to engage in that, if only because that's what Christ did with us, right? intentionally making himself uncomfortable, right? disabling himself, literally, right? that we might have life and life in full. And so, what I would offer to you is, number one, look for people who are suffering, right? Not because they are suffering, but look for people and take note of what suffering that they encourage, or they, sorry, what they encounter in life, right? And listen to their story about that. Whether you agree with their philosophy, their theology, with their politics, whatever, you don't have to, right? That's, that's not what the gospel is asking you to do, is to agree with them, right? But... You must listen to them right, first. Understand where they're coming from. Understand what work God has been doing in their life all along. Right? And that they're not simply an object or an axis of pity. Right? They're not defined by their suffering, even if it is a defining feature of what they're going through at that time. And offer to them that Jesus Christ walks with them in that that he has absorbed that suffering, he has taken it upon himself, right? And that he offers not necessarily healing, right? At least in this lifetime or in this body, right? But he offers the gospel. He offers transformation. He offers hope, right? And so I'm going to read for you this reflection from, um, that I wrote a couple of years ago <clears throat> about an experience I had in the ICU The nurse, the wife, the niece, and I sat together in the small family room, quietly thinking. I felt insulated from the sounds of the busy hospital, even as my pager tripped a warning that our ICU was about to get even busier. I resisted the temptation to sit on the edge of the seat and betray the anxiety I felt and the urgency of the conversation. We were gathered to discuss the critical decision to intubate a patient, a man who lay struggling to breathe in the bed just down the hall. We've been trying for days to stave this moment off with a tight face mask that forced pure oxygen into his lungs, but he had been ripping it off in his confused and deteriorating state. He was tiring out rapidly, and an internal clock in the back of my mind was counting down towards that tipping point when even intubation might cause his heart to stop and actually hasten his death. I looked at the wife and remembered our first meeting a few days earlier when the patient first crashed into the ICU. At that time, she told me how she had been living in the hospital for two weeks, watched helplessly as his first round of chemotherapy set off a series of nasty complications. She told me that the one day she went to get home to get some rest was the day she got a frantic phone call telling her to come back in and this time to the ICU. I told her she had permission to not feel guilty about going home, and she burst into tears of relief, sorrow, and exhaustion. We talked then about his tenuous condition and how sufficient recovery to tolerate the next round of chemotherapy was difficult, but not impossible. But in the days since, he only got worse. And his disorientation brought about by his decline, he was in a constant state of fear, agitation, and anxiety. 
And now, at the edge of his viability, it became my job as the supervising resident to tell her that we were reaching the point of extremis, that his survival depended on breathing through a tube which we might never be able to remove, that his respiratory failure came at the end of a chain of other failing organs, and that even if he survived the ICU stay, it was unlikely at his age and in his condition that he would ever recover enough to tolerate the next round of chemotherapy. So I told her what she already knew, and we sat still for a moment in that waiting room, listening to my pager and the muted sounds of the hospital chaos outside. And then she cried. She cried as she told us how just a month ago he'd been fishing with his grandson without any cares or illness. She cried as she told us how he had just asked his son to fetch his gun from home so he could shoot himself. She cried as she told us that she didn't want to see him suffer, that she knew it was time to let him go, but that she still didn't want to lose him either. I watched the niece cry and even the nurse cry as we felt the force of all our helplessness and fatigue and grief. I rarely felt the gravity of a moment as I did then, weighing the value of every word and pause against the ticking of that clock. We decided to let him pass to stop our modern medical torture and transition him to hospice. And even though I and every other specialist had known from the beginning that this would be the best outcome for the worst and final situation of his life, it still felt like utter and hopeless defeat. In that moment, I asked if he was a man of faith. His niece offered that he was and remembered that he always insisted on holding hands and praying together before meals every Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter. So I offered to pray for them, and we did. We gave thanks for the life of love that he lived and the deep affection of family that was the reason why these moments and decisions were so hard. We prayed for the release of his suffering, that in Christ our death is not final, but will be overcome. And in an unusual moment, we even had the audacity to pray for joy. We left the room and I rushed off to set up the oncoming arrival of three sick patients to the ICU It was so busy that I could not return to the patient's room for several hours. When I finally sat down at a computer to plug in some orders and take care of paperwork, the nurse came up to me and asked, have you been back to the room yet? Sheepishly said that I hadn't, had it been so busy. It's a completely different room, she said excitedly. Before that conversation, it was like a funeral. Now they're talking and laughing and joking and sharing stories about their memories together. I've never seen a doctor pray like that before. I was stunned. I hadn't expected to see such a change either. I stopped by the room and drew back the curtain to see exactly it it as she had said. I saw the wife's face transformed, smiling even through her puffy red eyes, the great weight having been visibly lifted from her. I didn't cry once throughout the entire encounter, but for some reason can feel the tears brim in my own eyes now as I write about it. It's been years, but the memory is still clear and bright because to me, It is the closest thing I've ever seen to a resurrection. So thank you. That's all I've prepared or I have time for today. Um, Thank you for being here. I know I didn't get to a lot of those big weighty questions that we kind of opened up the session with, but um, I don't know if we have time for a couple questions or anything like that. I hear there's a bioethicist coming in a couple of weeks. Um, you, could, you could ask about that. So um, euthanasia, the other term for it is um, physician-assisted suicide. Even that term itself is, uh, is a bit controversial. 
And so the concept of it is in the way that most states that have passed these new laws that are coming around um, say that patient has to be diagnosed with a terminal illness within six months, has to be verified by two physicians, right? And then they can be written a prescription for essentially life-ending medications such as a high dose of an opiate, but that no expectation can be on the medical provider to do that. The patient has to be able to take it themselves to be able to end their life. And so that's the framing of your question, right? And that's kind of the legislation that was passed in New Jersey. It keeps coming up every year in Delaware, trying to pass this legislation. Um, I've called to oppose it. Um, I am not in favor of it. The Christian Medical and Dental Association, which I'm not a member of, but their position on this is to be opposed to it. Um, the American Medical Association itself, right, secular organization for physicians, does not favor physician-assisted suicide. Right? The idea being that the problem is that if someone finds that to be an option for them, it is usually because we have failed as a system and as a society and as a healthcare professional to ensure that all other options for them are provided for. And especially in today's modern healthcare system where there is extreme financial distress on many levels, a lot of people may actually take that option, not because that they believe that that's fundamentally the best thing for them, um, but because they don't want to be a burden on their families, because they don't want to continue with lingering financial medical issues, because they're in pain that has not been adequately addressed. Right? So the official position by multiple medical organizations, including Christian and secular, has been to oppose that for that reason. Right? That we need to change our infrastructure. We need to change what we do so that there are not these perverse incentives. Right? There are not these reasons for patients to want to end their lives inappropriately. Additionally, because in other countries where they have done that, I believe Denmark, the New Yorker, had a really great piece on that. Severe depression um, is also a qualifying diagnosis for that, which I think most psychiatrists will tell you is a little bit kind of contrary to the point. Right? And so um, I also oppose it from a physician autonomy perspective because if that then becomes standard of practice, conceivably later on people can then turn to me and say, well, by you not offering that service to a patient, you are not offering standard of care, and therefore you are, you are liable for that. So there's multiple reasons that I do oppose it. Yes? Mm. Oh, boy. Here we go. All right. So, oh, look, we're out of time, right? So, as a pediatrician, I'm opposed to the utilization of recreational drugs. One, because it has detrimental effects, right? It's a mind-altering substance. Also because they tend to be an expression of an unmet need, right? And so there is often case a, a spiritual and a emotional component to that. Not everybody that receives opiates becomes addicted, right? So there are other multifactorial things that layer into that. I do favor um, improving the availability of medication-assisted treatment, right? And so things like suboxone, buprenorphine, um, Bivitrol, methadone, to be able to help alleviate some of the cravings. But anybody who works in addiction medicine will tell you that that's not sufficient to be able to help people who have usually addiction issues, right? That there are these fundamental deep issues that are also going on at the same time through social circumstance, through personal life experience, PTSD, unaddressed trauma. A lot of these things are layered into that as well. So it's a very complex issue, right? And the very easy answer to say, well, let's just ban these things. Like, let's be opposed to the use of marijuana and this and that. And when we talk about marijuana, now we get into this whole issue about criminal justice system and how a part of the society has been disproportionately incarcerated, right? That's my line of work, right? Um, 
because of using marijuana when there are other people who use marijuana and are not incarcerated, right, and therefore do not have the long-term societal and health detriment associated with incarceration. So to me, from a justice perspective, I think that needs to be resolved as well, right? But I will say that a lot of the rest of that is my privately held opinion as opposed to publicly. I do think we're short on time, so I want to allow people to leave that need to leave, and I'm happy to continue to answer or talk about questions. Thank you. Thank you for being here.